Welcome to Central Line, the AHA podcast. This is the official podcast of the American Animal Hospital Association, dedicated to simplifying the journey towards excellence in veterinary medicine for every member of the veterinary team. Here's your host, Dr. Katie Berlin. Welcome back to Central Line. I'm your host, Katie Berlin. We have a very special guest today. Um, We have Laura Gassner-Odding here with us. Uh, She is an author and a speaker and all-around super cool human being. Um, If you're not familiar with her, we'll have lots of links in the show notes for you to go check her out. But very, very lucky to get the chance to talk to her today. Laura, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. And um, I have found a lot about you online, and everybody calls you LGO. So yes. do you prefer to be LGO or Laura? LGO is great. My name is Laura Gassner Odding. It's a lot of names, so all my good <laughs> friends call me LGO. Or maybe this community just knows me as Juniper and Gustav's mom. I don't uh, know. I have a 55-pound Doberman and a 5-pound brand-new Brussels Griffin, who most days I want to murder, but he's pretty yeah. adorable. <laughs> I think we, we're all familiar with that. In fact, I'm bending down right now because Frank has been on and off my lap like 25 times um, since I sat down and hooked up the mic, and he'll probably want to get down again in a second. So. Of course. I mean, I actually almost <laughs> brought the Brussels to like be here with me, but I just he's he's only five months old, and I, I, I can't trust him as far as I can throw him, but I can throw him pretty far. He's five pounds, but I cannot. I cannot. He is not to be trusted at all. Yeah. Mm. I have, yeah, I think there's a lot of relatability in that. And so already you, everybody trusts you because you're a dog mom. So, yes. um, so LGO, welcome to Central Line. It's a privilege to have you. Would you mind giving us a little bit of background on yourself uh, besides the fact that you're a dog person? She's sure. obviously the most important. Thing. It is the most important. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, my name is Laura Gassner Otting. I am the author of the brand new book, Wonder Hell, Why Success Doesn't Feel Like It Should and What to Do About It. My last book was called Limitless, How to Carve, How to Ignore Everybody, Carve Your Own Path and Live Your Best Life. Both of these books really uh, focus on a question that I've spent my entire career thinking about, which is why success doesn't always bring us happiness. So why we achieve and we achieve and we achieve and we get to the top and then we look around and we're like the top of what? Like, is this all there is? Is this what I was meant for? Why does it not feel better to be here? So I'm really excited to talk with your audience today about this because I know that veterinarians are those kind of high achieving people. So yeah, you're my people. Yeah, guilty. We definitely are an audience with um, a lot of experience being like, okay, we just have to get to this landmark and then this goal and then this goal. And then it's like, all right, cool. Now what? Now what? Mm. <laughs> yes. A lot of us are really hooked on like certifications and things like that. And when I say a lot of us, I mean me. <laughs> um, <clears throat> because we, you know, there's there's a point where school is done and it's very hard to not be working toward that next thing. So we'll talk a lot more about that. But mm-hmm. is this your first veterinary audience? It is my first veterinary audience. I actually, Exciting. right before the pandemic um, had been, I was, I was pitching an organization that uh, I think that I I think that they were veterinarian associations of veterinary clinics, and I was really excited because I was really excited to get up on stage and like show pictures of my dogs to them before I did my keynote. And then COVID <laughs> happened, so of course the event didn't happen. So Aww. yes, here we are. Well, thank goodness for virtual because um, I'm really glad. And and I think our audience, and I told you this before we started recording, but I think in veterinary medicine, we tend to be pretty insular. You know, we look at each other and we look at leaders within our field, but we don't always think outside the veterinary medicine ecosystem. And um, I think there's so much to be learned um, from people like yourself who have done so much thinking and writing and speaking about what it really means to be successful, um, how we can work through burnout, avoid burnout, and and take care of ourselves and sort of do well while doing good, you know? Um, So your book is called Wonder Hell, which is a fantastic name. Like, that's a fantastic word. And I understand you just made that up. I did. I just made it up. I made it up on an airplane when I was on, I was on a red eye flight and I was on the way home from a keynote that I was giving in Vancouver on a Friday afternoon to Boston where I live, where on Friday afternoon, I, I, I opened for Malala, like Malala, Malala. Like I was the undercard (laughs) for Malala. 
On Tuesday of that week, I found out that my book debuted as a Washington Post bestseller. On Friday, I took a selfie with Malala. Now, the backstory of the selfie with Malala is that I had a whole, I had a whole like super professional script in my brain about how I was going to tell her how much I was impressed by her and how much I respected her and was inspired by her. And then I meet her and I was like, I like your shoes. So, (laughs) you know, they were really amazing. They were like these red, like suede stiletto shoes. They were amazing shoes. But yeah, that's all of a sudden. I'm taking this selfie with her i look like i'm like i like your shoes the next morning she probably remembers that well you know it's funny because i actually because i'm a total like socially incompetent dork i actually like friended her on facebook after that and she she friended me back and every once in a while she likes the post and i'm like i like your shoes so you know who knows you You gotta shoot your shot the next morning was my goddaughter's bat mitzvah so like i can't miss malala i can't miss my goddaughter's bat mitzvah so i'm on this red eye and i'm i'm at the gate and there was a mechanical issue so they changed the plane so i'm not in this beautiful live flat first class seat that my client had booked for me but i'm in the center seat and coach with like a linebacker on my left and a linebacker on my right snoring (laughs) it's 4 30 in the morning and i open up my laptop i basically given up the ghost like i'm not gonna sleep and i just was like it's 4 30 a.m or maybe it's 7 30 a.m or maybe it's 1 30 a.m at this point i don't even know anymore all i know is that i'm 1200 miles from where i've been and 1200 miles from where i'm going And the space I'm in right now is wonder hell. It's amazing. It's exciting. It's humbling that anybody even wants to think about something that I wrote, let alone buy the book and read it. And also in this moment, I'm like, Washington Post, what about the Wall Street Journal? And (laughs) someone's got to talk to Oprah under the oak tree. Why not me? And I was on the Today Show, but what about Good Morning America? Because Katie, that place in my brain that normally governs my humility was so exhausted out of me that I had this little voice that allowed itself to be heard that was like, this thing has legs. You could be more. This could be more. And I was like, oh, maybe I do want to be more. Oh, what could that be like? So I wrote that I'm like... Everybody says, if you can name it, you can claim it. And I was like, I don't want to, or if you name it, you can tame it. I'm like, I don't want to tame it. I want to claim it. Like I want the full experience of my life on this planet. I'm not in the center seat on coach. I'm not somewhere in the middle of the country flying across to like try to go fall asleep in the temple tomorrow morning at the spot mitzvah. I'm in wonder hell. And what I realized was wonder hell is that space in your psyche where the burden of potential walks in and says, it's amazing, it's humbling, it's wonderful, but also you now feel the burden of me, of what you can be, what you've seen of yourself, and you're full of anxiety and dread and uncertainty and envy and burnout and exhaustion. It's kind of hell. It's wonderful and it's hell. What you got for me, huh? Like, are you going to live into this newfound you that you didn't even know existed? And I think for a lot of those of us who are type A, as soon as we get to that certificate or that award or that growth in our practice, we go, well, in the doing of that, there's this next step that I see that also seems pretty cool. And what if, could I, should I, maybe I want to. So we're kind of all in wonder how all the time. Yeah, man. We sure are. Before, like, before we reached out to you, and we reached out through a wonderful person, Kristen Seymour, who is working at AHA now as a copywriter. Thank you very much, Kristen, for this hey, introduction. Um, but before we reached out, would you have really thought, did, had you thought about veterinary audiences and this book and this concept as related? <laughs> Yeah. So funnily enough, in my last book, Limitless, I, so in all of my books, I, I like to profile stories of people who have been through the thing, who have made the changes, mm-hmm. who have found both happiness, you know, success and happiness. And in my last book, Limitless, I actually do profile a vet, a oh. man by the name of Dr. Jake Tadaldi, who is my vet. And oh. the reason that I got to know his story was because he's a house call vet. He comes to my house and my, lovely little 55 pound Doberman spent a lot of her time as like a 35 pound Doberman who had, uh, uh, I don't remember the name of the disease, but she has cured herself of it, right? She, she, oh. she, she, she grew out of this thing that affected her so much that she had to be on prednisone and she was so Aww. sickly all the time for the first three years of her life. Poor that, baby. Um, we spent a lot of time together, me and Dr. Tadaldi. And over the course of him coming and being at my house, we would just kibitz and he would tell me his story. And what I learned was that he went to veterinary school. He was so excited to become a vet. And then he got into veterinary practice 
this thing he wanted to do, this thing he'd worked so hard to do. And what he realized was that he spent all day spending like 12 minutes, 12 minutes, 12 minutes with, with a patient. And he never actually got to be with them and spend time with them. And the time he spent the most with patients were the ones he were putting down. And it was just, mm. it, it didn't fill his heart with joy. He felt like he was going home at the end of the day, actually not being the caregiver he wanted to be. And so he decided to create a house call practice. And so now he has fewer patients. He charges more money, but he spends so much more time with his patients. So it's funny that you asked that because I actually literally did profile a veterinary, uh, somebody in the veterinary medicine world who changed the way that he brought his gifts to the world so that he could have both success and happiness. I love that. And I, I haven't read Limitless. I read Wonder Hell and I hadn't gotten to Limitless yet. And now I can't wait to read it. Um, it's sitting in my Amazon cart. <laughs> so I'm so excited <laughs> to read it. Um, and I, I love seeing veterinarians pop up in books that aren't specifically about vet med, because I think a lot of people sort of overlook us as a profession where people have trouble. You know, they're like, oh, well, you just, it's like a dream job because everything's so cute. And I oh, mean, oh, God, no, I think it's such a difficult <laughs> job. Like, as, as, as I mentioned, you know, my, my experience with this Doberman was that yeah. she, like, we had no idea what was wrong with her. She's just this very, she's just a very special case. Um, Dr. Dr. Jake likes to say that if there is there, if there is something that can be wrong with the dog, my dog will figure out a way for it to be wrong with her. She mm. also has a predilection for corn cobs so much so that oh, we no. can no longer eat corn in our house because as soon as there is a corn cob, she will find a way to get it into her belly. She has had not one, not two, but three corn cobs surgically removed from her body. Now, every vet right now is listening, going, oh my God, we should report this woman. Like she should not have dogs anymore. But like she will find her way into a neighbor's yard, go into their composting, dig through everything and find the corn cob. Like she is the, 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 the emergency room where we bring her to, not have brought her to, but bring her. It's just like it's an active present tense word. Yeah. She's like, we need to, we're going to have to give her a zipper if you bring her back again. again. It would be really great if we could figure that out because there, we've all had patients like that. Oh and gosh. like, I'm not judging because these people tried so hard. But I mean, it, I work from home. I am there with her all the time. It is just like this. It is so, it is so difficult. But I've seen, a lot of cases while I've been sitting in the ER waiting for my dog, there's the room on the side, mm. you know, where they're like, yeah. please respect the privacy of this room. And I've never been at that emergency room where there wasn't a family in that room. And the person who they're talking to and the person that they're leaning on is the veterinarian or the veterinary staff. And that is not an easy job day in and day out because half the time they've got their kids there. There's like, I mean, it is, that's a tough frontline place to be. It is for sure. And, and, the, um, and your our, patients can't talk. So it's not like they can tell you it hurts here. It hurts there. It hurts when I do this doc. Like <clears throat> you're like Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, definitely. Um, and we, most of us say, you know, that's the easy part is the mystery solving the medicine, mm. you know, because you can learn that. And the other stuff, the so-called soft skills yes. um, are so much harder to pick up, if yes. you ha especially if you haven't been told that they even are important, which yes. a lot of a lot of veterinarians, as as we know, think they're going to be vets, you know, from the time they're little kids and they're like yes. rescuing turtles in the neighborhood. Yes. And nobody ever says to them, well, you better learn how to love people. And you also better learn how to take care of yourself. Nobody says that. Nobody says that. And um, and that's something that really stuck out to me in, in your book, because um, you had talked about there was one uh, one part where you had been driving pretty hard and you were talking to your doctor and your doctor was like, okay, um, or your therapist was like, yes. hey, you know, we, we better, let's work on you being an overachiever. Yeah. And, and, and I think, oh, it's Addison's disease. I oh, just yes. what it's Addison's disease. We, yeah, that's we, a bad one. That's it's a, a bad tough one. one. Yeah. But, but we joke around because like we live in Boston and John F. Kennedy had Addison's disease. We're like, I see, she's a true that. asshole. Like it's, yeah. Like she's <laughs> yeah. like, she's, she's, she is, she is true Bostonian with her Addison's yeah. disease. But she miraculously cured herself of it. She can't stop eating corn cobs, but she cured herself of Addison's. Oh my gosh. So here's the thing. Like when the pandemic happened, like a lot of people, I just stopped sleeping, right? Like the stress and the uncertainty and like kids at home and dogs with Addison's and like all the things going on. It just, it got to me. And I, I, after not sleeping more than like a couple hours a night, every night for maybe two or three months, I, I 
I wasn't able to like form sentences. Like I was, I'm not good at math on a good day, but like I got into the point where I couldn't even remember like how many teaspoons of salt go into the stew from the time I look at the recipe till I turn to the salt container. Like it was just, my brain stopped working. And I wrote this post on Facebook again, like a lot of my epiphanies come from these screeds that I write on social media about how like, I think my brain is broken. Like I think I've given myself slow roll PTSD. Like I just, I'm, I am, I'm unrecognizable to myself. And yet here I sit with all the privilege in the world, safe at home, not stuck at home, like safe at home, even though I make my living getting on planes, traveling to events, speaking on stages. Well, there's no planes, there's no events, there's no stages, but I'm lucky enough that I was able to be okay financially. I'm able to be okay physically. I'm safe in my home. I'm safe in my marriage. I'm safe with my kids. But even still, I felt very stressed. And so I wrote this whole post and a friend of mine who was a psychiatrist called me up and she's like, um, I think you need to talk to somebody. And I was like, no, I'm fine. I've never had therapy. Therapy's great if you need it, but I don't, I don't need therapy. And she's like, yeah, I think maybe you should go talk to somebody. And so she connected me to a friend of her, somebody she, she was in, um, residency with. And I sat down in his office and he diagnosed me within about 14 seconds as being I think the direct quote was an exceptionally boring overachiever who could no longer overachieve syndrome, right? That was it. Like (laughs) there wasn't anything wrong with me. I just, I was somebody who was used to like counting my achievements by the trophies that I was packing into the wagon I was pulling behind me. And I was like, no, 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 no. I'm fine. Like being an overachiever is fine. He's like, yeah, but it's, it's untenable. It's unsustainable. And I was like, no, 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 dude, it's a feature, not a bug. We don't need to work on that. And then he countered with like the checkmate of all sentences, but you're here. <laughs> I was like, touche. Put the king down. I, I, white flag goes up. I, 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 I'm done. You're right. I, I, <laughs> what do you got for me, doc? And then he looked at me and he said, such a profound statement that I have carried it with me since that day. He said, you know, Laura, you don't have to give the trophies back. Oh, you don't have to give the trophies back. So like all the awards on our wall, all the certificates, all of the, you know, best of this and best of that, like we, we still have those things, even if we're not continuing to pursue and pursue and pursue we still have them. They are still part of who I are. we are. I don't have to sell a single other book in, for the rest of my life. Yes, buy my book. But I don't have to sell <laughs> a single other book for the rest of my life. And I will always still be the Wall Street Journal bestselling author, Laura Gassner Odding. The problem is that when we get to this point where we think we have to keep going and keep going because people are watching us, they're not. Like we continue to strive and strive and strive. But what are we striving for? Like what, what does the next thing get us. Like if I don't sell another book, I will still be that best-selling author. So what is selling five more books or 50 more books or 500 more books get me? I don't really know that it actually gets me anything very specific. So I think we have to continue to remind ourselves, what am I striving for? What does this thing get me? Does it get me more of the thing that I want more of, or does it just get me busier or more stressed or more exhausted? Yeah. I mean, and that makes so much sense thinking about how, you know, so many of us have been doing this one thing for so long with this singular focus and get to a point where we don't know how to focus on anything else. You and- don't have to stop. I also love that we're talking about exhaustion while your dog is snoring. <laughs> the background is hilarious. And, and he snores while awake. Like he's fully awake. This is just the sound that his nose makes. And this, is, this, is, I, this is the ambient noise. This is the, the subliminal yeah. messaging to all the people listening that we should all take a nap. Yes. <laughs> and, and he does this like all day while we're working. Amazing. Here, and um, it makes me just want to curl up on the floor with him. It's really, it's kind of, it's kind of deadly. So great. And I apologize to the one person who has emailed me and said you didn't like the noise of him snoring into the microphone. I, I apologize, but he is like 15 or 16 years old and I just don't kick him off my lap if he yeah, wants to Yeah, when I'm 97 so. years old, I'm going to snore wherever the hell I please, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. So. But I mean, so, okay, so how do we learn how to snore wherever the hell we please, I think is a really important thing to, to think about. Like, how do we learn to stop? How do we learn yeah. to just say like, the thing that I've wanted to do since I was eight years old or 15 years old or 25 years old, 
maybe I don't want to keep doing it, or maybe I don't want to keep doing it in this way, right? Yeah, like Dr. Jake. Like Dr. Jake. And I think what happens is when we're 15, 16, 17, somebody hands us a a, a card that says, here's how you decide what makes a good job good. Mm -hmm. Am I inspired by the leader? What's the mission of my work? How broad is, is the impact I can make? What kind of skills am I getting? How prestigious is the look on my resume? Where's the job located? How much money am I going to make? Things like that. But nobody ever says, put this list in an order that makes sense for you. Prioritize it in a way that makes sense for you. They leave out of the what makes a good job good, the what makes a good job good for you part of it. And the other thing they don't tell us is that the person that we are when we're 15 is not the person we are when we're 25 and 35 and 45 and 55 and 65. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. (laughs) I mean, if I was the same person I was at, you know, 20, I'd be like, you know, Mrs. Dan the bartender right now. Like, (laughs) a very different life. I'd probably be be ex-Mrs. Dan the bartender, actually. But man, he was a hottie, right? So like, my decision-making faculties when I didn't have a full frontal lobe at 20 are very different than my decision-making faculties now when I'm 52 and I have perspective on the world mm. and access to smarter people to ask better questions. And and I think we have to give ourselves grace sometimes to say, what has worked for me up until now has been great. It might not be what I want to keep doing going forward, and that's okay. I also might want to do something I've never done before. I might want to expand my practice. I want to change who I do I work with. I want to, you know, change the way I go about doing the work that I'm doing. And what has gotten me to here is not going to get me to there. Mm. But what has gotten me to here has been a list of things that I didn't know how to do before I did them, and I learned I created a network. I was able to figure out how to problem solve. So what got me to here won't get me to there, but what got me to here has been has built a foundation on which I can get to anywhere I want next. This AHA podcast is brought to you by Care Credit. Care Credit understands that all veterinary teams are busier than ever. To help patients get the care they need, the Care Credit Health and Pet Care Credit Card allows clients to access a budget-friendly financing experience anytime from anywhere on their own smart device. They can learn, see if they pre-qualify, apply, and even pay if approved, all on that smart device. With just a tap, they have a friendly, contactless way to pay over time for the services and treatments their pet needs, whether it be a general, referring, or specialty hospital as long as they accept the care credit credit card. Thinking, listening to you just now, like thinking about what got you here and what you can do with what got you here now going forward, because it's not like, you know, we might be different people than we were at 15, but we're not fundamentally different in a lot of ways. I Mm -hmm. bet, you know, like I um, have always, I didn't know that it had a name until much later, but uh, I've always been an anxious person. Yeah. Didn't know that feeling was anxiety, <laughs> but I remember getting a lot of stomach aches as a kid. Mm-hmm. And like, now I know what that was about, you know? Um, but that anxiety also makes me well-prepared and it makes right. me, you know, thorough and it makes me, um, you know, it, it gives me a lot of gifts every day. And I think it's probably a big reason why I am where I am in life. Would I have done something completely different without anxiety and maybe be more, quote unquote, more successful? Maybe. But- that anxiety is not going anywhere. And a lot of the things that got us to where we are, aren't going anywhere. Mm-hmm. And um, I think one thing about about Wonder Hell is that I sort of, I loved, um, so here, here's the book. And um, if you read this book, which I do recommend, you'll notice there's an amusement park theme. And it's really cool because um, it kind of, you know, talks about you talk about your journey through this amusement park, which is basically success mm-hmm. and all the different stages you're going to go through are almost like the rides and the, the places in this park. And, and um, nowhere in it does it say you have to stop being who you are and let go of the things that got you here. But sometimes you're like, you know, maybe those things don't have to be leading the way <laughs> all the time, you know, like that balance of figuring out what you need versus what you've always done mm-hmm. is 
very, it's very delicate and something that I see my colleagues struggling with a lot is they think it's, they're the only ones. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, so as you mentioned, the book is, is, is themed around an amusement park. And so in the amusement park, there's three towns in Poster Town, Doubtsville and Burnout City. And then in each one of the towns, there's five rides, which each evoke an emotion that we might have. And so, you know, there's the tent of oddities, right? Like (laughs) the tent of oddities is where like everybody wants to be special, but nobody wants to be different. But it's not until we learn how to like fly our flag proudly, like Mm -hmm. what makes us different actually is what makes us special. So, you know, I'm listening to you say like, having anxiety has actually given me certain gifts being prepared and, you know, but I, I also want to make sure that we underscore the fact that it's also given other people gifts. So the fact that you've had anxiety meant that you were more prepared for everyone else in your life also, right? That you were more thoughtful about them also, (laughs) that you spent more time thinking about them and you weren't just a flaming narcissist, right? So, <laughs> so I, I think we also have to remember that the things, and sometimes the things that we struggle with, they do give us gifts, but they also help other people around us. One of the things that I learned from the hundred different glass ceiling shatterers, Olympic medalists, startup unicorns, CEOs, entrepreneurs, activists, philanthropists, politicians, musicians, who, and everyday people like each of us who I interviewed when I was trying to find my way out of Wonder Hell was that they, renegotiated the relationship with these emotions. So Mm. they didn't see anxiety as a sling and arrow, something that they had to like swallow and push down and just ignore and just deal with and push into that stomach achy place. They said, oh, I'm anxious right now. That means I must be excited about doing something new. How cool is that? It's not, oh no, you haven't done this before, but oh wow, you haven't done this before. And so all of those feelings that we're experiencing, the uncertainty and the burnout and the exhaustion and the the envy and the dread and like wonder hell is the joy and the worry. It's the promise and the, the stress. It's the potential and the pressure. It's all of those feelings all wrapped up in one. And rather than just feeling the hell of the anxiety, they were able to say, wow, how wondrous that I get to be anxious and I get to try something that I haven't done before. I get to do something new. I get to do something unknown. And so Mm. they were able to really renegotiate their relationship with these feelings so that they weren't limitations, but they felt more like invitations. Invitations, not limitations. I love that. I'm going to write that on a (laughs) post-it. I have have a couple of very well-chosen post-its on my computer monitor. It's limited real estate there. So (laughs) I'm honored. I I love that because... um, I really do feel like I'm a big believer in strengths finder. Yes. Um, and we, we all do that at AHA. And um, you know, it helps you celebrate and work with your strengths rather than um, spend all your time thinking about what you're not good at. And then right, like you're not about- going to get rid of the anxiety. So no. you can either spend your entire life <clears throat> fighting against it, trying to work around it, being anxious yeah. about your anxiety. Right. right. Or you could say, what does the anxiety help me do? The anxiety helps me always be on time. The anxiety helps me always be prepared. The anxiety helps me be other focused and rather than just self-focused. Like there are so many gifts if you choose to see it that way and not just be exhausted by it all the time. Yeah. And obviously, you know, sometimes we need help managing these things. And that's one of the things that I love about, you know, you talk about this in the book, um, Strengths Finder talks about it. Um, we talk about it at AHA is balancing out the things that you're maybe not so good at <laughs> or don't gravitate towards so well. There are other people in the world who are good at those things and in fact might even love doing those things. And surrounding yourself with a team of people, whether it's at work or personally, like that has been such a huge change in my life since I stopped like constantly beating myself up about things that I wasn't naturally good at. And this is something vets and I'm sure to some extent technicians, um, you know, veterinary reception teams, we do that because we are taught that we have to be good at everything. I mean, veterinarians are supposed to be general generally good at medicine and customer care and communication and, you know, being touchy-feely when we need to be and workmanlike when we need to be. And it is a lot. It's a lot. And yeah, what you were saying about Dr. Jake, you know, that wasn't for him. Yes. And, you know, what I've always marveled about Dr. Jake is, like, if I say to him, my dog threw up, 
My dog mm-hmm. might be throwing up because he ate too much grass in the backyard. He might be throwing up because he has cancer, right? Like, yeah, it could be anything. And yeah. the fact that you have to have the entire like Western canon of veterinary medicine at your <laughs> fingertips at any given time, you know, when my, when my, when my kids were, were little, I used to take them to the pediatrician and I would think, oh, the pediatrician, my kids are healthy. It's a well check. Like, what do they need to really know? And then I became friends with a pediatrician and I talked to her one day after work and she was, I was like, how are you doing? She's like, today was rough. She's like, I had a beautiful well baby visit. I had a 14 year old girl with an ectopic pregnancy. I had a seven year old boy with a brain tumor. And I was like, oh my God. And they're all seven, you know, 12 minute, mm-hmm. you know, the same, the same thing. So just, and, and her patients can talk, right? Yeah. So it's like, you have all of that and your patients can't talk and you have dog parents who are, you know, let's face it, way more emotionally invested in their pets often (laughs) than in their kids, right? Because it's like, it's like their whole lives. So, you know, but here, but so here's what I think. I think that we are often taught that we have to be good at everything Mm -hmm. and we punish ourselves for the things that we're not good at. But we also don't reward ourselves for the things that we are good at. I tell a story in the book about how my husband is a math phenom, like eight, like perfect 800 SAT, SAT, right? Like perfect, (laughs) perfect math score. On the other hand, I make my living with words, right? So this was kind of a problem when I couldn't make words with my pretty mouth face, you know, when I can't even string sentences together. How do I do this? (laughs) So when I, when I ran my executive search firm, I used to try to like do all these projections and, you know, try to figure out cash flow. And I was like, how do I, you know, figure out the square root of salaries over cash flow over my will to live? Like by the two in the morning, I was giving up and I banged my head against the table. And my husband, he would come in. He's like, you know, I could just help you with that. Like I could just, I could just make the Excel spreadsheet, but I was so proud that I was like, ah, you know, like, no, I, like, I want to, I want to learn. I want to be able to do it. And finally I would just give up and I would, I would send him a, a, a text the next day. And I'd be like, I'm just trying to figure out what percentage of this number is that number. And like, how do I do this thing? And within three keystrokes and four seconds, he'd send me back a beautiful Google spreadsheet. And I was like, oh, nuts, right? Like he figured it out. And I would say, God, that's amazing. He's like, no, no, it's nothing. In the same way that when somebody says to me, gosh, you know, like you're a great writer. I go, oh no, it's, it's, it's nothing. But I think we have to be able to learn to say, yes, I'm great at math, or yes, I'm a great writer, or yes, I am great with patients and their families, or I'm really good at sussing out the specific thing that's wrong with this particular type of animal. Because I think a lot of times we brush off either what we've worked really hard to know how to do, or what feels like it comes natural to us, either because it does or because we've worked really hard at it. And because of that, we're so busy punishing ourselves for the handful of things that we don't do well, which by the way, we should just outsource to other people. (laughs) It was a revelation when I outsourced my billing to other people. I was like, oh, I don't have to do math for a living. I can just do words for a living. Amazing. (laughs) And, and, and I think, you know, we, we are, it's not that we're exhausted from being too busy. It's that we're exhausted from doing too many things that either don't matter to us or that we're banging our heads against the wall where we could be doing the stuff that actually does. So I think we need to really like give ourselves a little more credit for the stuff that we do well and stop punishing ourselves and forcing ourselves to do the stuff that we don't do as well and that we shouldn't be doing at all. So much yes to that. And I see vets do this all the time. um, And, and, uh, other veterinary team members do all the time. Um, and we do it to each other too. Um, you know, like the idea there, are, I see posts all the time in veterinary groups from vets who don't want to do surgery anymore, but they're afraid they're not going to be able to get a job. And right. first of all, you could get a job as it like you could spit and hit somebody who's hiring a vet yeah, like anywhere in the country right now. But also like, there are some vets that only want to do surgery. They just love it so much, but they don't want to be in an exam room talking to a client for any longer than they need to be. Right. That sounds like a great team to me, you know? Absolutely. And, and, but there's a lot of judgment, a lot of self-judgment for us. Um, when I gave up surgery, I went part-time, but I also just wasn't enjoying it. I was nervous a lot. I had been, I had gotten my first board complaint, um, which was unfounded, mm. but also very emotionally traumatic. Right. And it doesn't mean it still doesn't affect you, right? Yeah, like it affects yeah. you just as much. Yeah. It took two years to go away and I felt very vulnerable. And um, and I I had a lot of judgment for myself at that point. And I was 
absolutely convinced everybody else was judging me too. Like she can't, she's only like two thirds of the vet because she doesn't yeah. do this surgery. Yeah. And um, we do that to each other. We do it to ourselves all the time. Technicians do it to themselves. They'll say, you know, I'm only a technician or I'm only an assistant. So my yes. opinion might not matter. Dude, technicians and assistants keep that place running, man. You know, oh, they are, uh, yeah. <laughs> the skills involved are absolutely incredible. And we do not stop. And say, hey, I did a really good job on a blood draw. Yes. You know? I stop people all the time. I had a, I actually recorded a podcast just this morning where the woman who was interviewing me was, we were talking about exhaustion and burnout. And she said, I mean, it's nothing like your book launch. I only just ran a retreat last week, but you know, I'm feeling really tired. And I was like, let me stop you right there. Like exhaustion is exhaustion. It doesn't matter if you did this or did that. Or like, you know, there's a story I tell, as you know, at the end of the book, where I talk about running a marathon, my very first marathon, and it was 92 degrees on this day. And I had like basically had heat stroke. By the time I got to mile 16, I didn't know my name. At mile 17, my husband put ice packs in my jog bra. And at mile 18, I ran into a friend who pointed at my jog bra and was like, wow, ice packs. What a good idea. And I was like, looked down. I'm like, well, how'd these get here? Like, I I was (laughs) just so out of it. I get to mile 20. And my friend is standing in Newton Center and he holds up his phone and it says 92 degrees. And he says, Je- Jeffrey Carrere just finished. Like the guy who won the marathon. He just finished. Not only did he finish, he finished only 10 minutes slower than his world record setting pace the year before in perfect 50 degrees overcast conditions. 92 degrees this day. My, my shoes are like, boink, 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 oh, like into the pavement the because they're melting. Like it is so hot. There are bodies littered on the side, like, like, you know, Kenyans all over the side of the road. This is just, what we call just, type two fun. It was, yeah, no, I don't even know it was any, I mean, it, it's not even fun when it's done. It's like, it was not even, it was not even fun when it was done. I mean, there were people on the side of the roads with, you know, with IVs in their arms. It was awful. And as I'm cresting the 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 uh the top of Heartbreak Hill and I know I only have, you know, you know, a few more miles to go, I think to myself, I am running as hard and as fast as I can in this unbelievable punishing heat just to try to finish with the, you know any respect that I can have, but I'm running as hard and as fast as I can. And I realized that Jeffrey or sorry, Wesley Career had also done the same exact thing. He was at the depth of his pain cave too. He was running as hard as he possibly could, as fast as he possibly could, given his body type, his training, his knowledge, his experience. I was running as hard as I could given my body type, my training, my knowledge. I was a charity runner. I am not fast. The call me running is like an insult to runners, but like (laughs) he finished at like two hours and 20 minutes and I finished at like five hours and 12 minutes. (laughs) And, and the depth of our pain cave felt exactly the same. Like when you are working as hard as you can and when you are stressed as much as you are and when you are running on all cylinders, it feels exactly the same whether it looks the same from the outside or not. So I am like fully rejecting this notion of, oh, well, I just draw blood or I don't do surgery or I'm just this and just that and only this. No, my favorite Eleanor Roosevelt quote is this one, and you can put this on a post-it on your computer too, is <laughs> we would worry much less about what other people thought about us if we realized how seldomly they did. The truth is everybody is so worried about what we think of them that they're actually not worrying about us at all. They're just worried about themselves. So Nobody's true. paying that much attention. And so I, I find that to be an exceptionally liberating concept. That, yeah. you know, we have a lot of time in between the time we make a decision and we change doing what we're doing till when anybody actually even notices to figure it out and get it right for us. Yeah. Oh, that marathon uh, metaphor is so true. And in fact, I would argue that somebody who's out there for five hours and 20 minutes and 92 degrees has had a much harder day because they were out there over twice as long is all I'm saying, because I am I also mean, not a fast runner. So <laughs> I have said that in the past. I'm like, not only am I out there twice as long, mm-hmm. I am probably twice as heavy. I probably, <laughs> yeah. I mean, these Kenyans are like, they're made of bird bones. It's yeah. just, you watch them run by you and their feet don't even touch the ground. They just glide. Oh, it's I so do not beautiful. glide. I'm like a mastodon. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. and, 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 and it's just, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't know how they do it, but in those moments, we have to remind ourselves what we're made of. And I do think yep. that 
when we congratulate ourselves, when we congratulate ourselves more often for the things that we've worked hard to achieve, it reminds us that we can do hard things. And I think the hard thing about doing hard things isn't the the hard, it's the doing. Yeah. You know, it's the actual so like true. getting up and starting. And once we start, we get momentum and we can keep going. It's not it's not the fact that it's hard. Like we 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 are all capable of doing amazing things. It's just we got to yeah. make the decision that we can, that it's for that we deserve it, that it's for us. And sometimes the hard thing is is the stopping, you know, yes. and we also we hard drivers are also not particularly good at the stopping. Yes. <laughs> like sometimes the rest day is harder than the training day um, because we feel like we're not getting anywhere. But the rest yes. day is where all the real growth happens. And I was going to ask you, you know, we have a lot of conversations right now in veterinary medicine about um, people who feel stuck, you know, people who feel like, um, is it they'll write into these message boards and say, like, is it just me? Or is this place toxic? Like, mm. is any place going to be better than this? And I think that's a skill. But also, sometimes it can just be really hard to see the label from inside the jar, you Always. know, like, mm -hmm. when, when, how can we work on knowing when our feelings of feeling stuck are situational, or if it's time to work on ourselves, you know, it's, that's a really difficult thing. It, it is a difficult thing. And it's it's a hard answer to give because I think it's different for everybody. I think there are those moments, though, where I mean, I often ask people um, when when people come to me, they tell me they want to switch to a new career or a new job. I will often ask them, are you running from something or are mm. you running towards something? And I will caution people who are just running from to think a little bit more about what it is that they actually want. What causes them joy? When do they feel like the best versions of themselves? And are there things that they can do where they currently are to have more of that? There's a, a notion called the fundamental state of leadership. And so if you think about a moment when you were crushing it, right, you were just firing on all cylinders. <clears throat> As a vet, it may be that you were helping a family through a really difficult situation with their pet. It may also be that you put together a business plan to help scale your practice, that you fired a terrible employee and you found somebody who was great. Like there is, there are moments in your work where you feel phenomenal, right? What are those moments? For some mm. of us, they're loud. For others, they're quiet. For some, they're public. For some, they're private. It doesn't necessarily matter what it is. For me, when I'm crushing it, I'm on stage in front of 5,000 people and I look over front row and somebody's like wiping away a tear, right? Like, amazing, I did it. For my husband, it's crunching numbers on a spreadsheet in a quiet room where nobody talks to him. Bless it's, him. Bless, bless him. him. It's going to look different for everybody. <laughs> so in those moments, what skills are you using? What clothes are you wearing? What words are you using? How is the energy in your body? Who is surrounding you? What does it feel like? And what I ask people to do is to write a little bit about those moments and then to write about who they are in those moments. Put those adjectives on the home screen of your computer, on your phone, on your, you know, your car steering wheel, on your refrigerator door. And every day, think about that person. How do you lean in more to being that person all the time? What changes can you make in yourself, in your workplace, in your career that allow you to be that person all the time? And if you can do that, a lot of times we're stuck because we forget who we are when we're at our very best. And we let mm. all the, you know, we, we let the monkeys get us down, right? We let, we, yeah. we let the, the, the turkeys get us down as, as they yeah. say. And because misery is contagious, it is absolutely contagious, but joy sure. is also contagious. So if you can walk in reminding yourself of who you are in your best moments and try to volunteer for more opportunities at work that give you that, try to get rid of the stuff that pulls you away from being that person. If you can do that where you are, then you don't have to change jobs. You're not stuck. You have stuck yourself, but you're not stuck because of what's happening around you. If mm. you can't do that, then at least now you know what you're looking for in the next environment that's going to bring that part of you out. So I think we have to do some thinking about who we are at, at our best in our fundamental state of leadership, because the more we can be that person, the more that person becomes muscle memory and we become that person every single day. I love that so much. Like I just, I love all of that. And I hope everyone is listening. I'm going to like want people to play that back because um, somebody asked me when I feel the most alive a while ago. And I said, it's when I, when I'm teaching Bollywood dance fitness. 
Amazing. This is not what people expect me to say, but that's that was not that's what I would truth. have expected. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it is where I feel the most alive. And I think if people don't normally see a connection between teaching dance fitness, teaching Bollywood dance fitness, and working as a veterinarian at a nonprofit, which is what I do. Right. But- so, like, then we take that and we say, okay, so you're not going to teach Bollywood dance fitness in your veterinary practice, but who are you in those much. moments? Much, yeah. right, much. I mean, my Doberman's pretty special, I think. You know, she cured herself of Addison's. I bet she could learn how to do some Bollywood dancing. Uh, but but who are you in that moment? Like, why mm-hmm. do you feel alive? You're teaching yeah. something. You're physical yeah. in your body. There's yeah. music. There's light. There's joy. Like, what are the things that, you, that, that allow you to feel that way? And can yeah. you now insert that? So maybe you don't spend all... All day sitting in one place, like the surgery is stressful and you're there and you're focused, but you like the moving and the interaction and the right. Mm-hmm. So, so you can think about, you know, it's not, how does this directly transfer over from one to the other, but can it, can the skills translate into some yes. other type of type of way that you can bring it into your daily life a little bit more. Yes. And maybe you do a lunch and learn Bollywood dancing every Wednesday. <laughs> yes. I don't know. You uh, could, it can be literal also. It can be a literal transfer, but also it could be a translation. Yeah, definitely. We have had Bollyx a couple of times at vet conferences, which was really fun. But, um, but definitely it did teach me a lot about like what actually makes me feel the happiest. And ultimately, that's what matters. And I think everything you're saying resonates so deeply with me because I have had to come so far to think, okay, it's not what I owe people. It's what I owe myself because then I'm going to be the best for those people. Yes. Um, You had a quote in the book. um, You said, for your working life to feel right for you, it has to actually be right for you. Yes. So instead, what if you pursued consonance, that sensation of alignment and flow that comes when what you do matches who you are? I love that so deeply because I think a lot of us care so much about what we do, but that doesn't mean that the, the routine of going to work every day, the way that we learned it had to look is going to be what really fills our cup. Yeah. And I think for people in the veterinary space in particular, it's hard because again, if you've chosen to be a vet since you were eight years old, saving the turtles, like it is your identity. It is Mm -hmm. who you are. And the way that you imagine that you would interact in the world as a vet or working in a veterinary practice, it really is this, it's it's a little bit identity threatening to think about how that might change right? Like, what does it mean? Who am I when I'm no longer? When I sold my executive search firm, I actually had a real crisis of identity. I I, I was in executives, I was in executive search for five years at a big marquee company. And then I I had this moment of rage where I decided I was going to go off my own and I founded my own firm. And I ran that for 15 years. And and when I sold it, I'd been in, I'd been in recruiting for 20 years, but I was a CEO for 15 of them. And I had this like, who am I when I'm no longer LGO CEO? Like who, who, like what? I don't even understand how to like work in the world. And I was at an event. It was a, I was the chair of a, of a charity auction for a, a local AIDS and HIV services organization here in Boston. And I didn't want to speak in public. I'd never spoken in public. Speaking in public is terrifying. This is before I ever spoke. The irony. <laughs> the irony that now I make my living speaking at conferences. Uh, so, so I didn't get on stage. And so it's a very fancy event. I'm wearing this beautiful couture gown that's loaned to me from one of our fashion sponsors and the gorgeous diamond necklace that's loaned to me from one of the jewelry sponsors. And I got to give it all back like the second the event ends, sadly. Um, but I'm standing there next to my husband who works in the finance sector. And the a local newscaster gets on stage and she's like, I'd like to, before we begin, thank my dear friend, Laura Gassner-Odding, who dedicates her life to philanthropy. And I looked at myself wearing this ridiculous outfit and these ridiculous <laughs> jewels. And I looked at my husband who works in the finance sector and I was like, oh my God, I'm a lady who lunches. I'm a lady who lunches. <laughs> And not that there's anything wrong with dedicating your life to philanthropy. I had done 20 years of executive search specifically for mission-driven organizations, you know, universities, foundations, corporate socially responsible businesses, uh, advocacy organizations. Like this is, I did dedicate my life to philanthropy, but it was only one part of who I was. And suddenly I had no job. I had no business card. I was basically unemployed. <laughs> I'd sold the business, but I was... I was dedicating my life to philanthropy and I didn't know who I was. And so that crisis of identity 
I went home that night and I bought lauragasnerotting.com and I started blogging about stuff that was bothering me in the world because I was just like, I need a professional identity. And that's what actually got noticed, um, which is how I got the first TEDx talk. And then I got an oh offer gosh, to speak for money. That. And so like, this whole career came out of this crisis of identity. So, you know, what I'm saying is a crisis of identity actually can lead to something good, but it's a completely normal thing to feel. Yeah. Like if I'm not going to do surgery anymore, what does that make me? Am I only two thirds of a vet, right? Like that's a totally normal experience that we all have. But the problem is that we we're focusing on what we aren't. I'm not a surgeon anymore, but we're not focusing on what we are. It's not like suddenly you were only two thirds of a person. All the love and the joy and the the curiosity and the the drive just went into the other two thirds. And it filled that so that you were better at those two thirds and you weren't being drained so much by the third that didn't work for you. And so I, I, I like to... I like to ask people, like about every seven years, we need to sort of rethink who we are, what brings us joy, what we want to do, and how we can be in consonance with ourselves. Like how much, you know, calling do we want? How much connection, how much contribution, how much control brings us to a place where we can actually feel like the fullest versions of ourselves? And it really is about every seven years because about every seven years we change, our hormones change, the world around us changes. If you've got kids, those kids are now in school. Maybe those kids have graduated. Maybe there's a global pandemic, right? Like the world around us changes so much. The economic, you know, whims, everything changes. So if you haven't sat down by yourself or with your life partner or your your veterinary partner in the last five to seven years, you're probably due for a conversation about like, are we good? Am I happy? Are you happy? Are we still doing this? Like, what do we want to be doing? And maybe what are we thinking about coming up? Because knowing that there's a plan I think also makes us, it's another liberating thing. Like if I know that you're in it with me and you're definitely in it until your kids go off to college, then I don't have to worry so much about this little nagging thing in the back of my head. Like you might just tomorrow come in and tell me you're done, right? You're burned out, you're finished. If we have that open, honest dialogue, that allows me to feel like I'm not alone, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're in it together. We're working on this together. We're building together. We're closing down together, whatever it is we're doing together. So I think we have to keep having that open dialogue with ourselves and with all the people around us. So wise and definitely not something most of us do. And remember, if things change, you don't have to give the trophies back. <laughs> don't have to. Just think about how much faster you can move through the world if you're not dragging a giant cart of trophies behind you. Right? They can sit in the case at home where they're yep. safe and you can just go on to the next amazing thing, which yep. might be doing a lot of yoga. Or whatever is or Bollywood right dancing. Them. I mean, yeah, that sounds pretty fun. <laughs> it does, yeah. So, LGO, thank you so much. Um, this was amazing, and I am holding up the book again, and I will put. You can see all my bookmarks. You will. I will put links to the book in the show notes as well as your website. But um, where else can people find you if they want to learn more about you? Yeah. So as you mentioned, LGO, I'm on all the socials at Hey LGO, H-E-Y-L-G-O. And if you're listening to this and you're like, God, I wonder, am I in Imposter Town, Doubtsville, or Burnout City? And what should I do? You can actually go to wonderhell.com where you can learn about the book. And there's a quiz at wonderhell.com where you can oh, take a 15-question quiz and you can know exactly what ride you're on and exactly what ride is coming up. And I'll tell you some things that you can actually put into practice today to help maybe ease the pain of wonder hell so that you can live into the wonder and not just feel the hell. You said the magic word to veterinary professionals, which is quiz. Quiz. We love quizzes. So <laughs> I'm going there right now. All right. <laughs> but everybody definitely check that out and um, and check out the book. And I am going to hit deliver on that Amazon cart right now because I'm very anxious to read about Limitless and maybe we'll have Dr. Jake on the podcast. Oh, he's just fantastic. (laughs) He's fantastic. Well, thanks again, Laura Gassner Odding, LGO. um, It's been a pleasure and an honor. Thank you so much for all of your time. And um, this, I I hope we get to talk to you again. Oh, I would love that. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks to all of you for listening. We'll catch you next time on Central Line. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Central Line, the AHA podcast. If you love what you hear, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review. For more resources to help you simplify your journey towards excellence in veterinary medicine, we invite you to visit aha.org. That's A-A-H-A dot O-R-G.